This morning um, I want to carry on in this series of Being Human and uh, the theme I want to take this morning is Being Human, Being in Love. seemed appropriate given the week that's in it. Um, Valentine's Day, our fellowship group uh, met in the family centre just in the car park uh, during the week and we arrived in to find a very pretty arrangement sitting on the table on one of those nice silver platters, one of those nice aluminium bacon foil, the silver platter things, um, with um, a nice jar of nice stones and hearts uh, and a heart balloon uh, and around it three packets of lovely Marks and Spencer's heart-shaped champagne truffle chocolates. Thank you, Ruth. You're a star. We really appreciated that very much indeed. (laughs) It just made it for our group that night. But it got me thinking just during the week, does the Bible have much to say about the subject of being in love? And how do we, um, what are the spinovers or crossovers between the whole language of being in love and the language of loving God? Or God loving us? And it just got me thinking. So here's a few thoughts, which may or may not, I hope, will be helpful to you uh, to chew on in the week ahead. And as I say, in all of this series, if it raises issues or begs more questions or raises disagreement, you feel free to get in touch with me and let me know. Roses are red, violets are blue, the hippo is ugly, and so are you. We need to start at the right place, being in love and the whole issue of loving someone else. I love your lips and your eyes so bright. I even love your cellulite. (laughs) Don't laugh. For people of a certain age, that's very important. The roses were red. The violets were blue. The sugar was, was sweet and so were you. But the roses are wilting. The violets are dead. The sugar bowl is empty, and so is your head. (laughs) I'm sure you know many more, and I'm hoping that the folks in Teenage Bible Class will be able to help me out, and that the back of the blank sheets will be filled with verses that I can use next year, although it is a very long, 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 long time since I've ever sent a Valentine's card. But the sharpest piece of advice I got this year, which I pass on to all of you, is remember that Cupid rhymes with stupid. The first real romance that we come across in scripture probably gives rise to the familiar statement that love is blind. Um, it's in Genesis chapter 29 and you'll, if you want to read it later on you'll find it in page 31. It's the account of um, Jacob, uh, son of Israel who had had to run away because of his uh, treachery and cheating in regard to his brother Esau. And Genesis 29 and verses 18 and uh, 19 and 20, it, it really conveys um, something of the sense of human engagement and, and human love that is, is going on here. Because despite what this man might have been capable of in terms of his brother and his family, he was a man who was very much capable of love. Verse 18 tells us Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years. Um, sorry, this is what he says to Laban, her father. Okay? Jacob was in love with Rachel and said to Laban, her father, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Ah, oh. <laughs> It's all in how you read it. Another romance you come across in scripture is a pretty stormy affair. 
You'll find it in Judges chapter 14 and page 260. It's the story of uh, Samson and Delilah. Um, I wonder how it's possible to actually read some of this without feeling. <clears throat> I, I grew up, and this is not knocking, please note, this is not knocking either the King James Version or the church I grew up in. It's just the way it was. But when it came to reading the Bible, we had a kind of holy intonation uh, in terms of reading the Bible from which you did not deviate. And, and the passage in Judges chapter 14 from verse 16 may have sounded to me as a child something more along the lines of, And Samson's wife wept before him and said, Thou dost but hate me and lovest me not. Thou hast put forth a riddle unto the children of my people and hast not told it me. And he said unto her, Behold, I have not told it my father nor my mother, and shall I tell it thee? And she wept before him the seven days while their feasts lasted. And it came to pass on the seventh day that he told her because she lay sore upon him and she told the riddle to the children of her people. Now the truth is, it really needs a wee bit more feeling. Um, So here's a slightly different reading of it which comes uh, as follows then. Samson's wife threw herself on him sobbing. You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her. Perhaps one of the most beautiful love stories, romance stories in the whole of the Bible, is the story of Ruth and Boaz. You'll find um, how it develops on page 268 of the copies of the Bible in the pew there, particularly chapter 2. And it is a beautiful story. It's a very important story. Theologically, um, in Scripture, it has a great deal to tell us and a great deal to teach us, but it is a very human story. And sometimes we miss the reading of it uh, and and the storytelling that goes behind it because um, we we just aren't looking for it there. But verse 5 of chapter 2 Um, Boaz sees Ruth in the field and he says nudging one of his men hey who's your woman over there well I know that's not quite the way it is in the text but you've got to to hear the story that's in here and verses 8 to 9 he comes over to her and he says just stay here don't go to the other fields follow my harvesters have a wee drink of water when you need it And then in verse 14, he uses the oldest trick in the book. He takes her out for lunch. Come over here and have some bread with us. Dip it in the wine vinegar with us. And the killer line, do you fancy some roasted grain? But you get a sense of what's going on. And then in chapter 3, you have the whole dressing up thing. Where her mother-in-law advises her to put on her best black dress. And a dab of the old Chanel. And she hangs back in the shadows. And then she moves in when he's relaxed and ready for a doze. And when he wakes up in the middle of the night, there she is, right beside him, smelling like the perfume hall of Harrods. You see, it's not just the chemicals you smell in this story. It's the chemistry. And the next morning before the rest are up, he gets her to bring her shawl over and he pours six measures of barley into her shawl. Hey, hey, that's not just barley the man's pouring. That's love, the man's <laughs> And Ruth knows it. 
Okay, so there are a lot of important things to learn from the story of Ruth. And it is a wonderful story, but it's a very human story. And sometimes we miss these things. There's the great romantic, even at times erotic, expression of love that comes in the Song of Songs. Um, chapter 5 on page 681 has, has part of it there. Um, this is Peterson's rendering of it in the message from verses 10 to 16. Uh, and you know you're familiar with this movement between um, the lover and the loved. And the, the text says, My dear lover glows with health, red-blooded, radiant. He's one in a million. There's no one quite like him. My golden one, pure and untarnished, with raven black curls tumbling across his shoulders. His eyes are like doves, soft and bright, but deep-set, brimming with meaning, like wells of water. His face is rugged. His beard smells like sage. His voice, his words, warm and reassuring. Fine muscles ripple beneath his skin, quiet and beautiful. His torso is like the work of a sculptor, hard and smooth as ivory. He stands tall like a cedar, strong and deep-rooted, a rugged mountain of a man, aromatic with wood and stone. Modesty prevents me drawing any obvious parallels here. <laughs> okay, so it's not that there's millions of love stories in the Bible, and the Bible certainly isn't Mills and Boons, thank goodness. But what there is recognizes the reality of human love and being in love in very real and very open terms. And being in love... And thinking about being in love shouldn't be unspoken in the life of the church. It's a great thing for someone to be loved and to be in love. It's an enriching thing. But the reality of life is sometimes it's also a cruel thing. Sometimes it's also a heartbreaking thing. And maybe it's because of those extremes. Church is the last place you ever really hear language that has to do with being loved or being in love. Being in love involves the giving of yourself and your hopes and your expectations into the hands of someone else. And when reciprocated into a lasting relationship, it can be greatly rewarding, but when rejected or when it fails, it can be devastating, even damaging. Being in love is to be celebrated. Being in love it's a privilege. Being in love can bring difficulty. And the absence of such an experience can be painful. Not necessarily so, but it can be. Some folks are more comfortable in keeping their distance rather than getting into the kind of vulnerability that a close personal relationship may bring. That's fine. Some folks are just more comfortable with a sense of autonomy in terms of their own feelings and their own lives and emotions. And again, that's fine. But others can be at breaking point for lack of being loved or lack of being enfolded in a loving embrace. One of the most profound and moving experiences I ever had was in a conversation on the street with someone. We were talking about their life and they were asking about mine 
And they gave me a very precious insight to a different world. They've been asking about my family and about the girls and where they were and what they were doing. And then as they listened, they made the comment, I don't know what it is to be loved like that. Someone whose mother died when they were very young had never been in a relationship, never had the experience of being loved by a partner or a daughter or really having someone to love. It was completely unknown to them. I was devastated. In just a few seconds, I was taken to and allowed to see a world I could not comprehend. I didn't feel pity. That would have seemed just far too patronizing. But I did feel completely shocked, numbed. I can't really in words convey that really. The intimacy of standing in a conversation on the Lisburn Road. What a place to learn one of life's most profound lessons. No, we're not good at talking about being in love in church. And I'm not really sure how you develop the language of that in church. But it's certainly one of the things I'd like to hear what you have to say about we talk around it, we avoid it, we go somewhere else to hear love stories told to us. We go down to Waterstones or the cinema or the theatre, but the last place we ever think of is church, which is a shame, because the stories out there rarely have any reference point in regard to God. In one of our recently married get-togethers, uh, we heard a few enchanting stories, including the lovely story of the teacher and the beach volleyball girl. Yep, it's a real life story in Windsor. It's not right for me to tell it. It's somebody else's story. But if you have a word with James and Hazel over coffee, they'll tell you the whole thing. So being in love, being in love with someone, it's part of life. It's part of what we don't talk about in church. And yet somehow we need to find the language to do that and to think about it. But I said at the beginning that part of reflecting on this week had me thinking about what it means to speak about loving God and being loved by God. And what's the crossover between the language that we use in human experience in relationships and, as we, uh, and our, our love for God. And I've been chewing over the degree to which the stories of being in love, the music, the songs, the poetry of being in love affects our understanding of loving God or being loved by God. And I wonder to what degree the wistfulness and the fickleness of love as we see it portrayed in drama and song influences our grasp on what it means to be loved and to be in love. I think that in the church often the only sense in which God's love is understood and spoken of is in terms which are themselves restricted by the human experience of love. What I mean is we're expected to understand what it means to be loved by God only as we reflect on different types of human love. And the problem is that human love is at best a poor imitation or illustration of God's love. And the problem is hugely compounded when someone says they don't have any real experience of close human love. Is such a person doomed to never sense or know the love of God? Given the kind of language we often use in church, the answer would be yes. It's reflected in some of the songs that we sing. 
songs that include expressions of loving God. I mean, I've confessed and I appreciate that I'm a grumpy old Baptist. But I can't help wondering if there aren't lots of Christians who may feel obliged to use the terminology of love and being in love. But it doesn't begin to mean anything or equate with any sense of loving God or being loved by God in the songs that we sing. Is it just me? Or does it happen with you? What does being in love with God or being loved by God actually mean? Do we need to have been in love with another person to understand what loving God or being loved by God means? I think that's often the message that we communicate in church and it's wrong. Is it right and appropriate that worship songs should reflect the human experience of being in love? Sometimes I'm tempted to laugh at songs in some of the old hymn books that we used in church when I was growing up. The sentimentality of them and Songs like, Where is my wandering boy tonight? Some of you know that song. Maybe some week we'll put the words up on the screen for you. We can all laugh. But what's so different with some of our contemporary songs? Are we actually too smart to repeat such nonsense? Or are we too dumb to realize that we do? I believe that anyone can understand or experience the love of God, provided we don't restrict it to the same thing as the love of a parent or the love of a spouse. They are useful analogies. They are biblical analogies, but they are inadequate in themselves. So I want to think for a minute or two about being in love and being loved by God. I want to take two Old Testament passages and two New Testament passages to just try and give a handle on what it means to speak about being loved by God. The first passage you'll find on page 182. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And it's a a section that runs from verse 32 to verse 39. And then I'm going to nip over and read a few verses from page 186, which is Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 9. But first of all, Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy is not maybe one of the books of the Bible that you would think of turning to to develop a theme of love. We've already looked at Song of Songs. We've looked at Ruth. uh, We've looked at the stories in Genesis. But Deuteronomy is every bit as important. Verse 32 of chapter 4. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created man on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him there is no other. From heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he showed you his great fire and you heard his words from out of the fire. Because he loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. To drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you. 
and to bring you into their land and give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. And all of this is a demonstration of God's love. Verse 37. Page 186 in Deuteronomy 7 verses 7 to 9 develops the theme a little bit more. When it says this, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. And one other main passage of scripture to look at just before we think a little bit about this is in the prophecy of Hosea, page 900 if you're following in the church editions. It's Hosea chapter 2. And just the last verse of chapter 2 and the first verse of chapter 3 and then a couple of verses from Hosea chapter 11. So page 900, verse 23 of Hosea chapter 2. And if you're familiar with the background of all of this, this, this is God speaking to his people through the prophet Hosea and using Hosea's life and relationship with his wife and the very tortured relationship that that is as a, a, a kind of metaphor for the relationship between God and his people. And at the end of chapter 2, God says, I will plant her, that is Israel, for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. And in chapter 11, just over in page 907, verses 1 and 4, or 1 to 4 of that, that section, is still picking up the theme. When Israel was a child, I loved him and brought out of Egypt, I, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. In Deuteronomy, the theme and the language that is used in Deuteronomy is the, the language of covenant and strength and faithfulness, of deliverance, someone who comes to work on behalf of those they love. In, the, in Hosea, the language is the kind of language that is used of human relationships. And particularly that Hosea 11 passage is actually the language, it speaks to me very much of the language of how a mother cares for a child. And what you discover from these passages and from other passages in the Old Testament is that God's love is tied up in the concept of covenant. Commitment lies at the heart of God's love for us. Now it is such a powerful commitment that it cannot be expressed without some element of passion or emotion. But it is important to understand that God's love works this way round. Commitment and love. 
Our idea of being in love is that you fall in love, the chemistry is right, and then you make a commitment as confidence and love grows. It works the other way around with God. That's where the human analogies all break down. It's a strange idea. You cannot separate, even by a millisecond, the commitment God makes to you. The lasting, eternal, unshakable, unchanging commitment God makes to you and his love for you. Maybe the nearest human parallel is that of a parent at the moment of the birth of a child, where there is that emotion, that expression of commitment and love together. And yet, tragically, that doesn't always last. You see, you do not become lovable over time with God as is so often the case in human relationships. God does not decide to make a commitment to you on the basis of how well the relationship develops or goes. What I'm saying is this. Those with strong family bonds or those who experience being in love don't necessarily have a full handle on what it means to speak of God's love. For all human love has a sense of being gradual or growing or developing, or weakening in commitment. None of us in this room has a true human equivalent for the unbreakable commitment that God makes to us, which is tied up with the language of love in relation to God. Hosea describes God's love in three different ways. He describes it as the love of a father, as the love between a husband and a wife, but as a love which goes beyond such metaphors. And goes beyond such reason. In both Deuteronomy and Hosea, we can say at least five things about God's love. God's love is personal. It is personal with God. It comes from within God. It's not about just doing a deal on which the word love is hung. It's not just about God doing what God is supposed to do which is right, and we call it love. It's what God is, and by his very nature, what God does. God's love is voluntary. The gods of the world of the Old Testament were tied to places or peoples. Each god and each community had to perform in a certain way. The gods of nature or the spirits of places had to interact with or be interacted with by the people of that place or that race. But the God of the Old Testament has no such imperative. He's not the sea God, the fire God, the God of a place or the God of a race. He is the God of creation who chooses to love and make a people his own. And that's different. His love is not something that he has to do by virtue of limitation on him. It is voluntary. It is spontaneous. And undeserved. It doesn't arise because of the beauty or the worth in the object, which is the point that God makes to his people in Deuteronomy. It is love that is utterly faithful. And one of the terms that most frequently occurs alongside the term love in the Old Testament is the term loyal or faithful, because that's the characteristic of God's love. It's love that is completely just. There is within it a perfect balance of judgment and forgiveness. Now, it doesn't matter, actually, what your experience of human love is or isn't. There is nobody in this room who, in human terms, has ever experienced a quality 
of love, such as the love that God has for us. Some of us might be privileged in different ways to get a bit of a handle on some of the illustrations. But this is of a different order, and no one is excluded. There are similar New Testament expressions of God's love which reflect the Old Testament pattern. But of course the big difference in the New Testament is that we get to see what love looks like. We get to see what love looks like when we see the face of Jesus. Because we see him touching the leper. A man devoid of the opportunity of human love or human touch. He lives outside in the lonely places. And Jesus touches him. We see him weep over Lazarus' death and the grief of the sisters, Mary and Martha. And we understand what God's love is like. We see him weep over Jerusalem just a short time before Jerusalem is going to crucify him. Such is the nature of of God's love and we get to hear it expressed in the intention and determination of those words in Mark chapter 10 verse 45 the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many we get to see it in the meekness and the human weakness of the crucifixion which is why we hear Paul say when he writes to the church in Ephesus in chapter 5 in the opening verses dearly loved children Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And later on in that chapter says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Because the nature of the love of God we see in the New Testament is a love that gives beyond reason. And a love that gives with the same level of commitment that we discover in the Old Testament. And that's why we hear John say in 1 John chapter 4, it's on page 1227 of the copies of the Bible in the pew. He says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Being human and being in love is a great thing. Being a human being loved by your creator and saviour is a greater thing of a different order. Whatever your experience of love or being loved, whatever your lack of experience of love or being loved, you've got to get beyond the human parallels. We're circling in a different orbit when we're dealing with the love of God. We're dealing with total commitment to you before you even get to open your mouth and say hello. We're dealing here with commitment that is expressed ultimately in sacrifice. And finally, just to say a word or two about being in love and loving God. One of the really interesting things in Scripture is that there are many fewer references to what it means for us to love God than there are about us being loved by God. I've had my concordance out this week. I've been checking it. You check it too. It takes me back to what I said about songs, for example. When, if you can't relate to the language of love that is used in them, 
Does that mean you don't love God? Or you're incapable of adequately expressing love for God? You see the words of a song go up on the screen. And they're all about expressions of love which are very personal and very emotional. And you stand to sing those words and you think, I just don't relate to this. I just don't feel this. Does that mean you don't love God? This is the danger. While there's much good, there is also danger in the crossover between human experience and the human experience of love and dealing with what it means to love God. When Jesus is restating what love for God means and looks like, he restates the Old Testament teaching. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It is never in Scripture, loving God is never in Scripture perceived as merely or even primarily an emotional response. To which Jesus adds, love your neighbor as yourself. Scan through the Bible, especially the New Testament. There are many fewer references to us loving God than to God loving us. In huge tracts of the Bible, the language of love is one-way traffic. It comes our direction, right down our street. Why is that? I think the answer is because the love that God gives to us is to be expressed not in sentiment, but in action. If you study 1 John, which is the most densely packed part of the New Testament on the theme of God's love, you'll find that 35 times the word love appears. Not counting loved or loves. There's nine of those. At least seven of those references are very specific references to how God loves us. And in John's uh, letter, there are more than anywhere else references to do with what it means for us to love God in return. I found at least 16 specific, not counting repeats and things. And here's the interesting thing. When John talks of God loving us, he talks in terms of sacrifice. He talks in terms of what God has done for us in commitment and love. When John talks of us responding to God's love, he talks about loving others. It's very interesting. He doesn't talk about a particular kind of emotion or feeling that indicates we have experienced or understand God's love. He talks about what we do with it and whether or not we pass it on. Verse 3 of 1 John 5 is very specific and very clear. This is love for God. What is love for God? Being in church? Singing the songs? Getting emotional in your devotional times? No problem with all of these things. This is love for God. To obey his commands. You don't need to manufacture feelings. Though as you are touched by the love of God, you can and will be powerfully moved. You don't need to worship in a certain way to demonstrate to anybody else that you truly love God. You don't need to expect to feel as the world feels when we're in love, to know if you love God. You need to be committed to do what he says, and in particular, to spread the love he set upon you. Being in love in human terms is a great privilege. 
But even the experience of a warm, loving relationship doesn't begin to equate with the force of God's love. You're not excluded from the knowledge of the love of God if you're short on human parallels with which to compare. The Bible tells us that the love God has for us has commitment and kindness in equal measure and both are given freely, instantly, enduringly. The Bible tells us that the love of God is seen in the face, in the life and in the loving of Jesus Christ. Extended to the lonely, the untouchable, the grief-stricken, the ordinary. The Bible tells us that the measure of our love for God is not measured by emotion or feeling, but by obedient response. The emphasis is not so much on returning God's love and sending God valentines as spreading or sharing the love of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in this room today and undoubtedly in homes and other places where people will catch up with what we've been doing here this morning, there's just such a vast array of human experience. Forgive us for the way in which we make assumptions about our lives and the lives of other people when we look on the surface we realize that there's a great deal more which we never know and never understand. And so we pray that today you would help us not to be looking so much around at others and their lives, but looking at what Scripture tells us about you and your dealings with us and what our response to that should be. And what we pray is that the Holy Spirit will help us as we think about this theme and develop this theme in the quietness of our own homes or when we have moments alone or whatever, that we might explore and ponder on this theme and that we might know in a deeper and more profound way the measure of your love for us and be equipped and helped by your Spirit to respond appropriately. Father, grant that something of the measure of your love might be shed abroad in our hearts and from our hearts, shed abroad among the people we meet and know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.